Hey. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for being here, part of this uh, part of the uh, jail and prison um, ministry workshop. Uh, Beverly and I uh, did prison ministry uh, back in the day uh, where uh, our kids grew up going out to the Shelby County Correction Center. And so we'd go every Sunday and have worship services there and work with the incarcerated uh, individuals. Now these individuals were adults, they were, not, uh, they were not juvenile, but we got a good taste of what it's like um, to work with those individuals. I think the thing that struck me about working with um, the prison population, or those that are incarcerated, was that we would see them, we, um, we would have a full worship service at the correction center. Uh, I'd preach the gospel, um, they were, there were individuals that were baptized, and then we would send them off where they're going back home and um, you know, be back with their families. But the thing that bothered me was that we would see them back. So between um, a month to six months, because we did this for years, our kids actually grew up sitting on the front rows uh, at the Shelby County Correction Center. But uh, we would see them back and we would try to connect with them while they were outside, but we were having a difficult time connecting with them. And so then you've got the prison side of working with uh, incarcerated youth, incarcerated adults. And then you've got the, I would say, the pre preventive side. I want to talk more today about the pre preventive side and things that we can do to help uh, our young people that are at risk. Um, <clears throat> this thing doesn't seem to be working. Oh, okay. All right, we're back on task. That's my contact information, and if you want to get a hold of me, I probably have some cards. If I don't, Beverly has some cards. <clears throat> um, that's my cell phone number. That's the best number to get me at. And then up there also is my email address, and that is literally the best number to get me um, uh, in terms of email. I'm very tech-savvy, so... Uh, as a, uh, I guess, a baby boomer, I'm tech savvy, not compared to the young people, but you can text me, you can Facebook me, you can find me on LinkedIn, all that stuff. So anyway, that's my contact information. I was mentioned that uh, we planted, Beverly and I and a group of individuals, we planted a church in uh, 1997. In fact, the Highland Church of Christ, this church, uh, sponsored our work. I was on their staff and this was a church that was planted in the community where I lived. And so we worked there. Uh, we started out in the storefront, uh, 1997, Father's Day. And then in 2001, we built that multi-purpose uh, facility. In fact, Doug Burris, uh, one of the deacons here, uh, helped us design that building. And that building is designed to uh, accommodate young people. So we have a summer camp that's going on right now in that particular building. Uh, also, uh, they mentioned that I'm the uh, president of the National Urban Ministry Association, which uh, collaborates with ministries all over the country. We just had a conference, the National Urban Ministry Conference in Oklahoma City. Uh, we'll be having one in February of next year uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, <clears throat> Monday through Friday, so right now you see I've got my agape shirt on, and I work for uh, 
Agape Child and Family Services. And we're going to talk more about that. And one of the things that has happened with me is all of my ministries work together to help people. And so being uh, a preacher uh, on Sunday, I'm preaching the gospel Wednesday night, teaching Bible class and working with families. But then Monday through Friday, I'm in the community. So I'm not really in a church office, not really in Agape's office. I'm out in the community. And so that helps with uh, this process that we're going to be talking about today. Um, <clears throat> so my uh, topic has to do with at-risk juveniles. And so I, I want to begin to uh, talk about at-risk juveniles. Um, I want to uh, give you the opportunity to ask questions. So if you have questions as we go through, you don't have to wait to the end. We can begin to have a dialogue even now because I want this to be something that's beneficial to you. I'm going to be talking to you from my education, from my experience, from my work with Agape, from my preaching experience, from leading the National Urban Ministry Association. So that is my uh, context. I did not grow up poor. Uh, I did not, uh, I've not, never been in prison. Thank God. Praise <laughs> the Lord. And so I'm not coming to you from someone who has come out of it. It's someone who um, I believe God has just called me to have a, have compassion for people who live in poverty, for the poor, for um, the under-resourced. And so that's just been the ministry that I've done pretty much all of my life. Um, started ministry full time in 1997. Uh, before that, I worked uh, in industry. But I want to talk to you about this uh, particular uh, subject. And, and there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Why are there so many? Why is there so much juvenile crime? Why are there so many African-Americans being arrested and locked up? And these are rhetorical questions to get you to think. Why are there so many school dropouts? Why? Where are the parents in all of this? Where's the church? What's the deal with so many school suspensions? Uh, anybody who wants this PowerPoint, I will send it to you or post it on our website so you don't have to take you know, just religious notes. Uh, I will send it to you if you uh, give me your contact information. Um, what's being done to address these alarming statistics? Um, how did things get so out of hand? How are we going to stop the high crime rate in Memphis? And that would be in any other city as well. And how are we going to rescue the youth trapped in these destructive cycles? My context is Memphis, so I serve in Memphis, so I know more about Memphis than I do other cities. But one of the things that just in terms of my role in, with the National Urban Ministry Association is that I've traveled to other cities. So looked at Atlanta, is the same, same thing going on in Memphis, going on in Atlanta, yes. Uh, same thing going on in Nashville, yes. Same thing going on in Oklahoma City, yes. So while there are distinct differences, you will find some similarities. So. Uh, the things that I talk about today are applicable to other cities as well. So one of the things I think we need to do just quickly, and this is not by any means um, the full scope of the urban landscape. So in Memphis, um, all of the projects except for one have been torn down and then they've come in and redeveloped uh, through a project called Hope Six. And so you have the projects torn down, new mixed use kind of um, uh, dwelling places, uh, apartments, uh, single family homes are put back in those areas. And so then the people who live there in the projects moved out 
and then young professionals move in. Sometimes those who have moved out are not able to meet the criteria to come and move back. And so then they're dispersed all over the city. And so then you will see this um, in other cities as well. So that's part of it, but uh, I'm not gonna spend much time talking about that. I do want to um, talk about this. So there are some things, some stark realities that we just need to um, be aware of. In April of 2012, the Justice Department came and looked at uh, juvenile court here in Memphis, Tennessee. And here's what they found. They said that our system here in Memphis, and this is an actual picture of the, uh, the juvenile court here in Memphis. It said that the system punished black children more harshly than whites. In the most incendiary finding, investigators said the court detained black children and sent them to be tried in the adult system twice as often as whites. So when you look at, this is downstream, this is with, the, they're already in the uh, criminal justice system, well then there's a disparity between how individuals are treated. And this is what uh, the criminal justice, I mean, excuse me, the Justice Department found. Now there were people here in Memphis who opposed this, one was a judge that worked there, but this is a report from the justice system. Um, <clears throat> another one that I think is important is that 9,000 children face these kind of delinquency charges in the juvenile courthouse each year. Many of them are handled outside of court, but what that uh, note says is that 3,000 are handled in the court system itself and prosecuted by the district attorney. And lawyers say that 90% of those prosecuted are poor and black. So you have 9,000 who go into the system, about 6,000 are dismissed or some other arrangements are worked out so that these individuals are not prosecuted. But 3,000 are prosecuted, and of those 3,000 that are prosecuted, 90% of those that are prosecuted are poor and black. The statistics are not um, always the same as if you try to do some research and find out what's going on, but it's pretty consistent that African-American youth and Hispanic youth are incarcerated more often than white uh, youth. And so it's just, um, it's a trend, a reality that we have to come to grips with. Uh, this particular statistics, I've seen different numbers, but here's one where they were trying to do um, an awareness for um, uh, youth that are incarcerated. And it says that uh, African-American youth are nine times and Latino youth are four times more likely than white youth to receive an adult prison sentence for the same crime. So here again, what I'm trying to do is say, okay, here's the landscape. If you look at the statistics that's going on in our world, and then next we wanna look at, okay, so knowing all of this, Jim, that's all well and good. What do you want us to do? Or what should we do? What are some appropriate steps that we can take? So, I mean, if you just look at this, it's bad. Amen? It's, it's bad. So however you want to look at it, whatever the real numbers are, if they're real numbers that can be obtained, the situation is bad. And um, the church needs to respond as well as um, uh, organizations like um, uh, New Life and, and other organizations. We need to respond to this problem that we have in our country. 
Well, part of it is related to poverty. Uh, I was just taken aback when I saw this map. Um, and this map is a percent of low-income students in U.S. public schools, and this was uh, in 2013. And uh, the source is the Southern Education Foundation. But if you look at the red, all of the states that you see where they are colored in red, and it looks pretty red up there, 51%, excuse me, of the students in those states, 51%, so that's the majority of the students in those, those states live in poverty. 51%, <coughs> excuse me. So you're talking free and reduced lunch, you're talking about field trips that you know, that they could get paid for if that, that's in the budget. But 51% of those students are living in poverty. Worse than that, in Mississippi, the number is 71%. So there is a statistical correlation between poverty and being in prison. If, if you're poor, there are, you're the chances of you ending up in prison are much higher than if you didn't come from a background where you're poor. And so I put this up here for us to see that poverty is another problem that we have to address in terms of working um, with these families. This slide is just, this is not meant to represent all of the families that uh, live in poverty. This is a family that I've worked with and I have permission to share this information with you. And so just looking at this family, this is, instead of looking at the red map and saying, okay, you know, that's generic, those are statistics. Here's a family that I know. Here's a family that I've talked to. Here's a family that I've worked with. And so I wanted to share that uh, with you. Uh, the mom is unemployed on public assistance, has uh, limited education, and the only uh, real skill set that she has is being a mom. Um, the guy that uh, is in the picture is not her husband, uh, which in uh, the areas where I serve, it's, it's typical that they're not married. And uh, he is unemployed, has no identification, limited ed education, and his skill set is kind of a handyman, painting. He's not had a, a consistent job in terms of being able to provide for his family. Now don't hear me saying that this is what all the families look like, but what I'm trying to share with you in my work in Memphis, this is an example of one family and I can point to other families that are identical to this one. Does it make sense? So I'm not wanting to offend anybody, I'm not wanting to say that all poor families are like this, but I'm trying to say here's a real family that I've worked with and this is a family that is typical of some of the families that I interact with. There are some that have jobs and are working and, and are not like this, but this one helps to highlight the problem that we're faced with. I listed, uh, if you look at the young man that's uh, next to his mom, the one here that says normal. I'm just saying it's basically a normal kid. There's nothing unusual about the way that this uh, young man uh, is in school and other places. Uh, the, his brother below him has asthma. He's often sick. So it's, if he's often sick, he is not at school. So he misses a lot of days of school. Is this making sense to y'all? Is this, this stuff that y'all see? Okay. <clears throat> and then he's hyperactive. And guess what they want to do? They want to put 
put him on, on drugs and things like that. Uh, over to, as my right, maybe it's your left, the young lady here, special needs. Uh, in terms of when she comes to church, because remember I said the church has a role in this. Mm -hmm. Are y'all in here with me this morning? She uh, requires one-on-one -on -one attention. So there has to be a member or, there has to, or the mom or the dad has to be with the child to keep her uh, occupied and under control doing worship. Um, <clears throat> and so this is children's worship, Bible class, and so um, they have to sit with this child. Uh, and then this young um, uh, baby below, uh, she's normal. No, no problems uh, that are evidence. Any questions so far or comments? Okay, well, let me, let me roll on. Uh, so then when you look at this family, uh, just in terms of some of the problems, uh, they run out of food the third week of each month. Uh, they're on food stamps, but yes. No. So you're talking about other fathers of these children. No, she is not. And, and I don't know if you, you run into this, but often moms do not want to um, try to get child support because they're afraid of the father not being involved in the life of the children or some other reason. And the fathers often are not involved in the lives of the children anyway. That's true, some of them are incarcerated. And this particular individual has had some, uh, spent some time in prison. And so that's another uh, problem. No transportation, no phone, few prospects of a job, very little income. And when they come to church, ask church members for money. Does this picture make sense to you? And so I mean, this is just one family. And of course there are other families that are faithful and work hard and all of that, but I just wanted to highlight, in terms of you look at that map and you see the 51% of people live in poverty, here's a family that that affects and this is a family that, that we've encountered. Okay, so now then it becomes, uh, what do we do with all of this? And that's what I'm trying to get to now. Um, yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm used to having this synced with that, but anyway, that's a whole nother story. Um, whether this statistic is right or not, this was uh, after uh, the incident that happened in Baltimore. But it does highlight something very crucial. There is a disparity between the amount of money that's spent on education and the amount of money that's spent on prison. So I put education on people that was wrong. It's actually prison here, education here. So there's more money spent on prisons than it is on education, whether this number appears right uh, or not. Um, yes, sure. Oh, God. thank you. <laughs> uh. Okay, all right. Yes, sir. You know, uh, the product we have up there now in, in relation to the family, I mean, the family uh, is regular. Poor and poverty neighbors, it's not an effect. There are many families that are in that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, how much do you think uh, that 
Yes. So I think I think it's outdated. And when we look at the problem, there is no one uh, thing that is the problem. Education is only one component of the problem. The home of the family is also a component of the problem. So what's going on in home life? What's going on at school? What's going on in the community? what's going on in the church, what's going on uh, as part of this individual, the child, the family's life, all of that is important. And so I'm gonna talk about that as part of the solution uh, in terms of, okay, so how do we begin to work toward this? So yes, sir, it is a problem. Uh, one of the things I'm gonna talk about in just a minute has to do with what we do uh, in terms of agape uh, inside of the school system to help this particular problem. Yes, sure. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we, we are, when we think of the family, we're used to thinking about the old family, two parents, uh, you know, established community. Yes. That, you know, in poor neighborhoods, that hardly existed anymore. Yes. And the old school system was set up to deal with those types of families. Yes. The type of family in poor neighborhoods now, the need, the education system not need those needs. Now, I don't want to talk about Yes. Yes, that's that's a very important point in terms of the what the family looks like today. It's totally different than when I grew up. I grew up in a two-parent home, lived in a house. I walked to school. A teacher lived next door. There were bankers in my community. There was all kinds of things in my people in my community that helped to mold and shape me that are not typical in apartment communities. So remember I mentioned that the Hope Six project tore down the projects and then people moved out. And so now what they live, where people live now, are conventional apartments, and then some of the conventional apartments accept Section 8. And so then these apartment communities are concentrated with people who used to live in the projects in some, in some areas. And it depends on your city and um, what apartment community you're talking about is how that looks. But primarily, the people who live in the apartments are single moms with children. That is the primary one that's inside of some of the, uh, what we would call at-risk communities. Yes, sir. Would it be safe to say that, um, based off these statistics, the reason why the education has not been uh, advanced to today's society is because of this? Because the money is going somewhere else versus going to school and the safety of Yes, I would say that's, that's, a, that's a good observation. And then part of this also has to do with having um, the belief that you can change the system if you are creative in like education. So changing the way the classroom operates. I'll give you a quick example. 
we have a son and boy, he drove us up the wall. That's my wife, Beverly, back there. Where your hand, Beverly? <laughs> and so <laughs> our son, Alan, when he was in kindergarten, I went to, uh, I had to go to school and talk to the teacher. And the teacher said to me, and I don't know why she wanted to say this to me, but she said it to me. And little Jimmy came out. See, I'm Jim, but little Jimmy is the bad one. Little Jimmy came out when she said to me, either he has to go or I have to go. Oh, Lord, why did she want to say that? Um, in my nice Christian way, I just kind of folded my hands and looked at her and then just quietly walked out of the classroom and went and sit in the car because I didn't want to say anything out of the way. But there was another teacher after that. So what I decided to do is sit in the classroom with them. And then after a while, all, everything worked out. Didn't have to uh, say any, any harsh words or anything. I just went to sit in the classroom. But that was a smart teacher. I think it was his next year. And it, which third grade, third grade teacher. So you got these little rambunctious boys. And my son and my grandson right now, he loves to jump and play basketball and he just runs all over the place. He runs around, we have a place where he can run around in our house, he just runs. And so what this creative teacher decided to do, first thing in the morning, before she sits them down in the classroom and try to get them to do their reading, writing, and arithmetic, she takes them outside on the playground and let them expend all of that energy and then when they come inside, they're ready to learn. Right. Now it was a simple thing that she did, but that was creative in order to help those uh, those little boys be ready to learn. And little boys are different than little girls, and so you have to uh, be creative. Um, there seems to be a pipeline that leads to incarceration. Uh, you may have read about it, you may have heard about it, uh, this statistic is often quoted, but when you do a little research, it says that it's not accurate. The third, using third grade reading scores to predict future um, bed needs for prisons, and many people have cited it, and those uh, newspapers and others, factcheck.org, said that that is not correct. Even though that's not correct, there does seem to be a pipeline for ending up incarcerated. Let me talk a little bit about that. Um, when you look at suspensions in school, how many of you heard about zero tolerance? Okay, so in school, very good. So zero tolerance basically is if you do something in school, you will get sent uh, home. That's, the, that's one of the um, suspended or expelled. And so it turns out that young people who are suspended from school statistically are more apt to end up in the juvenile court system. So suspension from school is one of the first steps to ending up in the juvenile court system. 25% of black middle school students have been suspended at least once. For black male students, that number jumps to 32%. So that's about a third of uh, African-American male students that have been suspended in school. And this was looking at 6,000 school districts. So when you look at that, 
students are suspended, they get in trouble, they're not at school, and a lot of times the school districts do not provide educational support while they're at home. So when they're at home, they're suspended, three-day suspension or whatever that number is, they're not getting educational services at home. What happens to their brain? They get further and further behind in their classwork. Across the country, at least 80% in our urban centers, so these are the major centers, cities like Memphis, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, et cetera, 80% of the students are reading below grade level in urban environments. And so if they're reading below grade level, then they get suspended or expelled from school, or they even get an in-school suspension and they're not getting educational support, guess what happens? They get further and further behind. Quick story, I was, um, how many of you know about proctoring an exam? Like for TCAP and in the course exam. So this year, I was proctoring an exam for ninth graders. It was their end of the course exam. And so I'm walking around, looking at them, seeing what they're doing and all of that. But there's this one student that caught my attention. This one student opened up the test booklet and looked at it, and the look on his face said that he was horrified. He was horrified because he didn't know how to do it. Right. He didn't know how to do the work that was in the book. Right. And so then he sat there for a while, and this expression, I'll never forget it, he just looked horrified, it's like, I can't do this. And so then he closed the book up. Right. And throughout the test, all he did was marked answers on the sheet, not marking the answers based on what's in the book, but he just marked answers and then about time for him to turn it in, he turned it in. This student is gonna have trouble surviving in our world because he is undereducated. And so when I say there seems to be a pipeline, this is what the pipeline tends to uh, look like. Uh, <clears throat> so what do we do with this? How do we solve the problem? The key for solving the prison pipeline is a shift away from reactionary discipline, which would include those things when you minor infraction and get kicked out of school. You have a question? No, I'll just read. Oh, okay, okay. And one, one of, did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I say that as a guide principal of 38 families. Okay. So that's one thing that maybe you can look at or research because you don't realize when you miss one day out of school how much you miss it. Right. Somebody just telling you what to do is nothing like being in front of a teacher face to face. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Jenna? Spelling you, they put your attention. Is that still like that now? 
Yes, and it depends on the school. So there are some where they have this kind of in-school suspension and detention where they send them to a place. Some, some call it an ABLE center. Some calls it some kind of university. But yes, they have. They don't study them when they send them to, if they bring books and stuff, they can study their classwork while they're in detention? They can, but from my experience, so we're in five schools in Frazier, and I lead a team that's in those five schools. Basically, that is to, when they're in detention, it is to keep them quiet and to behave in that setting. And they can do homework, but there is no one there that's really providing instructions for them. I saw your hand and then I'll get you. I'm for it. I saw him right here. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So, yes, it's like when you are at church, if you look at statistics, 20% of the members do 80% of the work. And so with the police department, with educators, with preachers, all of that, there is a percent that really care. So I would say yes, that those who care, and then there are those who just who just don't. I saw another hand I thought Right here. Oh, okay. All right. But who do they put in the detention? Usually the coaches that are just there so they can coach. Yeah. They're not real teachers anyway. Yeah. The in-school suspension is not designed to be a place where you can get caught up. It's a place to get you away from the rest of the classroom, uh, the students in the classroom, so that they can teach. Well, a couple of things that... Uh, um, this particular director of the University of Kinetic Center of Behavior Education suggests uh, George Sugai, Sugai, excuse me, is preventative and interventionary. So one is preventing things from happening. 
So working with the little babies before they get suspended, working with the students uh, who need remedial help, and then also working with students with behavior issues in terms of intervention. Uh, and, and so those are the things that I wanna focus on now. If you look at any particular person, um, we have 16 areas of life that affect all of us. And there, there, there are these things that we've got to have in order to live. Uh, and that's, that's the 16, we don't have time to look at that, that uh, whole list. For me, why do I care? It's what Jesus says when he goes into the temple. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about one of the models that uh, is out there. It's not the only model, but one of the things that we do. So about um, two years ago in Memphis, there was a lot of upheaval with the school system. School system, um, Memphis City Schools became Shelby County Schools and you had municipal school districts. And then you had the schools that were at the bottom 5% in the state of Tennessee, the achievement, the achievement school district took over those, those schools. And so they came to our agency, which is a nonprofit, came to our agency and said, can you help us? Basically, our role in the school system is you got in the achievement school district. So we're in four elementary schools in Frazier and one high school, Martin Luther King uh, College Preparatory School, Corning Elementary, Whitney, uh, Georgian Hills, and um, uh, uh, Frazier. We're in those four elementary schools. They are pre-K through five. The teachers and the school provides the academic support. What our agency provide is the social services support. So in other words, why is a student not coming to school? Then we go and address those kinds of issues. Uh, they need school uniforms, they need uh, food, they need eyeglasses. So my staff works with the teachers and the principals to help solve those problems. So, yes ma'am. Okay. You know, I just couldn't understand how's that and why is that? Because the kids is mostly out of school because of the weather. And to me, it didn't make, it don't make sense. We know we're out of school. school okay. Never yeah. Just quickly, we don't know how to handle <laughs> icy weather down here. And so that, that is part of it. Yeah. Safety issues and want to get, not want to get sued. Uh, quickly, if you look up here on this diagram, all these bubbles, let me tell you what that represents. So we are in the community. We have an office where the headquarters is, but our staff is in the community. So one particular school in Fraser is called Corning Elementary. So I have three staff members in that school that go to that school Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. Wednesday and Thursday, they're doing home visits with the families uh, in that community. And so one of the primary concerns that we have is getting the students in the classroom and ready to learn. 
That's kind of a, a slogan that we have. We're trying to get them in the classroom and ready to learn. So we have what we call connectors that do that. So they will go to the home, talk to the parents, find out what the problem is. A lot of times it's transportation. Uh, sometimes it's mom works from six, uh, works uh, at night from 10 to six in the morning, something like that. And it overlaps when they're supposed to be at school. And so the kids don't get themselves up and go to school. But our staff helps to address those. Around the corner from Corning is an apartment community. In that apartment community, I have an office space. And like right now, right as I speak, we have staff in the apartment community doing a summer program. And so we have staff now that's in the school uh, doing the uh, uh, summer school. We have other staff working with the students in the community with the summer camp. And uh, focusing on reading intervention and making sure that those students that we work with the very first day of school that they are there and that for the first month they are there because typically it's after Labor Day when the students come to school the influx of students come to school does it make sense so part of this is that we have got to go upstream we know that they're ending up in prison so we go upstream to part of where the problem is. So part of that solution is in the home, and then the other part of it is uh, educational services in the school. How much time I got? One minute? No minutes? One minute, One minute. okay. Um, let me just share this with you. When it came to attendance, we were able to improve attendance from the first semester to the second semester based on our staff going into the school and helping these students. Another thing I think is crucial is suspensions. We were also able to reduce suspensions because we were working with these students. Let me tell you what you can do. Here's what you can do. One, volunteer upstream and downstream. So if it's your thing to go into the prison, go into the prison. But also there's preventive, there's interventionary kind of things that you can do outside. Another thing is mentor. Part of what's really helpful for these students that we work with is that our staff is there with them and there for them. And then also providing tutoring services for them. And then use your professional skills. There's a principal, there's a, a former teacher, others in the community that have professional skills. Collaborate. You don't have to start an agency to do this. You can join with what an agency is already doing to, to help out. And then the last one and where I end at is advocate for policy changes. So then changing how the school system works, changing how the dollars are spent in terms of education versus prison. Thank you very much.